Kevin Mondro here, Coach Dro, D-R-O. Welcome back to the Tell Me Your Story Coach podcast. The podcast where we advocate coaches and help young coaches learn from the coaches telling these stories. Today is a special podcast. Thanks, JJ. You are right, young man. JJ Mondro is my six-year-old son who wants to be the first pro golfer and NBA player. JJ was right. Today is indeed a special conversation. So many of us are preparing for March Madness, whether it is winning your conference tournament or winning your district or regional or sectional state tournament or playing and advancing in the NCAA tournament. At the end of the day, we are all striving to be the best possible team come March. I'm fortunate to have a relationship with Coach Brad Stevens that goes back to 2000. Actually, Brad and I were both director of basketball operations at the same time. Brad at Butler, myself at Detroit. For Brad Stevens to take time out of his all-star break is simply incredible. I can't thank Brad enough for being so gracious to share how he thinks teams can win in March. Sit back and enjoy this wonderful conversation with the current president of basketball operations with the Boston Celtics. During Coach Stevens' eight years at the helm of the Celtics, Brad had won over 350 games and led the Celtics to three Eastern Conference Finals. And before making the journey to the NBA, Coach Stevens was the head coach at Butler University. At Butler, Brad won four regular season championships, three league tournament titles, and had six trips to postseason tournament play. He became the only coach in school history to lead a team to the NCAA Division I National Championship game, which he did twice. Brad and his Bulldogs went to the NCAA Final Four and National Championship championship game in 2010 and 11. Subscribe, rate, and review on whatever platform you are currently listening. Remember, we are everywhere. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, and so much more. Please keep telling your coaching friends about this podcast. The bigger audience we can create, the bigger impact we can make with younger coaches. Follow Tell Me Your Story Coach on Instagram at Tell Me Your Story Coach. Follow Tell Me Your Story Coach on Twitter at Coach Kevin Dro. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Kevin Mondro. Enough of Coach Dro. Let's get to Coach Brad Stevens and learn how to win in March. Coach Stevens, how do you think teams win in March? Man, that's a that's a uh, that's a big question, Kevin. I <laughs> I think it all starts with understanding how you get to March, and you know I think that that was something where you know my first couple years at Butler, we were on a, a great run of great teams. You know, we were playing against your great Detroit teams with Rashad and with Willie and and those guys, but you know, it was us and you and UIC had a little run in there at the top of the league there for a couple of years. And, but it was basically, if you won the conference tournament, you were in the tournament. And if you didn't, you were out of luck. And we learned that my, my first year we won it and went to the tournament and beat Wake Forest and got beat by Arizona. My first year as an assistant at Butler and my second year, we were 25 and five and got beat in the first round of the conference tournament and didn't get in. Mm. And so from that point on, for us, one of the things that we really spent a lot of time focusing on was how do we position ourselves to give ourselves more avenues to get in this tournament? And I think that the team that really we studied and tried to become more like from a philosophical standpoint, and when I say philosophical, more of a scheduling-oriented standpoint, was Gonzaga, because mm-hmm. it seemed like they had always given themselves the ability to get in, even if they got knocked off in that conference tournament. And so in that early 2000s, middle 2000s, it was more about what can we do with our schedule as we 
continue to field competitive teams and continue to compete in a league that usually just gets one bid? What can we do with our schedule to give ourselves multiple avenues to get there? Because I do think that, and I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit, I think that when you're playing in mid-major leagues, you play with a lot more pressure in January and February than the teams in major leagues do. So the Butler way to me was toughness, first to the floor, picking up your teammates, sharing the ball, and so on. You think about doing all those things. Can you think of a few examples? Those things may have won a few games for you in March. Well, there's no doubt. I mean, you don't win. You don't You don't go through those runs in March where, you know, we went to Sweet 16 in 03. And, you know, the first game, Brandon Miller hits a shot at the buzzer to win. The second game, Darnell Archie goes nuts and we beat Louisville. Go to another Sweet 16 in 07, and we hit enough shots to get by Old Dominion in the first round and Maryland in the second, and and just kind of fought, you know, scratched and clawed to be within a a point of Florida with four minutes to go. That great Horford and Noah team that ended up winning back to back titles, and then obviously our runs that when I was the head coach, where we were fortunate enough to go to Final Fours. I mean, there were so many close wins in there, and you know, it was almost all those games you could point to a loose ball, a 50-50 rebound, a charge, a wrestling for the ball. There was a run in 11 that we went on, and and I swear Matt Howard came up with the ball or a tip in five consecutive wins that sealed the game. And so all of that stuff that you said are great visuals of what I would phrase as the Butler way, but I think it's more of the the bottom line is, is those guys and those teams were only about team and winning. And so when you enter a game that way, when you play that way, and when you're tied together that way, then, you know, you win those little loose balls because you're not worried about anything else that's going on in the game. You're not worried about my playing time, how much I'm scoring, you know, what I'm not getting out of this experience. You're just focused on the team. and That was what was so special about those groups all the way through. Some coaches scout until they literally pass out where some coaches just spend 95% on themselves and don't really focus on the opponents. How do you balance your opponent in March versus being the best version of yourself? Yeah, I mean, I think in college, you know, the way that my formula, and maybe it's because this is the way I'm wired and this is the way I think is, I really like to prepare and study an opponent, try to see what we can take away, try to see what we can do to make, to disrupt them on both ends of the floor. And so I think it's quite a balance. I think the you know, you can't waste days in the preseason, you know, as you're getting ready for a new season and you've got six weeks where you can focus on yourself. That's why you can't waste those days. And because I think once you get into the season and then once you get into March, it is important from at least my standpoint to focus on, you know, again, the opponent and how you can disrupt them on both ends of the floor. So we spent a lot of time on opponent prep. Uh, I thought we were, I thought we were really good at it. I thought our staff, the assistant coaches did a great job of putting in all of the work so that we could hopefully simplify a plan of attack for our team so they could play with a clear mind and, and fresh in these like enormously tense environments and moments. But I really, you know, I really enjoyed that part of the college game. You don't get that as much in the pros just because you know, there's game after game after game. But once you get to the playoffs, you get it in droves. Yeah. And I love that part of the pros. But we spent a lot of time on, on other teams. The only thing that I asked our guys, every year I'd go through kind of the formula for postseason play. And one of our key bullet points on our teams were you don't expect to play perfectly, mm-hmm. but you need to invest five more minutes a day in your own preparation. 
And it doesn't mean that you needed to be like, you know, I didn't want our guys overwhelmed by it. I didn't want our guys paralyzed by the analysis of it. That was the coach's job is to lose all the sleep and figure out all the small things that you could do in the course of a game to give yourself a small edge. We just wanted the players to have the idea of this is what we need to do to get the job accomplished. You know, these are the simple things that we need to be able to do. And I think, you know, that was that was something that we really enjoyed. And, I, and our players really enjoyed. We had so many coaches off of those teams still to this day. So when we would get into practice, you know, those guys always really enjoyed going through the prep. You know, thinking about high school coaches heading into March, you know, going into mm-hmm. districts and sectionals and regionals, wherever you live. How do you prepare for a team a second or a third time? Yeah, I mean... I think one of the hardest things to do is when you play great against the team and you go into a meeting with your team and logically everyone will assume that, you know, we shouldn't make much change. We shouldn't do much different than we did in game one while you know good and well the other team is preparing to be different. And I think so there's a, there's a like each I think you look at the game objectively, what you did well, what you didn't do well, but you have to also anticipate, you know, what tweaks the opponent's going to make, especially if you're playing against these teams and these coaches for years on end, like you do in the, in the conference play. And I think that that's part of playing a team well over and over and over. Because good teams aren't just going to stay the same and do what they do if you had success against them. They're going to make small tweaks. They're going to make small adjustments. and You've got to be prepared for that. Nothing challenges that better than in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got beat by 41 year by Cleveland in game two. And I had one of our people look up a stat and they looked up, you know, the last so many teams that had gotten beat by 40, you know, in the next game, the team that got beat by 40 had about a 500 record. And so, you know, that just shows you that each game is its own entity. You go into it with the right mindset. You go into it with what your task is based on the game plan, based on your job as a player, your job as a coach. And you all work together to try to get the job done. How did you flip the script of your team? And not to jump into the NBA, but it's obviously a great example. You know, like so many times where high school coaches are getting ready for these big games and they might play a team that, you know, maybe caught them twice or or beat them pretty good. Briefly, like how did you flip the script with your guys? Well, oftentimes if you get beat consecutively pretty good by a team, that means they've got a, a decent advantage probably overall, but certainly somewhere that they can really hone in on and exploit. So I, I think that those games where, you know, you lose by a couple and it's back-to-back games. We started a series out. We lost our first two home games against Chicago one year, and um, we ended up winning the last four games of the series. And you know, for us, it was just about we just wanted to create a different matchup with a small change in our lineup and a small change in kind of how we were going to play. And then from there, we thought that that would be enough to play better, but also give us just a small, you know, tweak of, of hope. Sometimes after you get beat, you know, a couple games in a row by a team, your team just needs to believe you're looking at it and, and doing something different, even if it's not that much, mm-hmm. even if it's just a, you know, a sell to the group, right? And so, you know, when you get, when, like I said, there are times where you realize the, the task is bigger than that. But certainly, almost always, when you go into a game, you feel like you can win if everybody is, you know, on one page and willing to do their jobs. Short prep, Sweet 16, Elite Eight, Final Four. How did you get your guys to go, you know, play with, you know, less than 40 hours, 48 hours in terms of like, how much film did you show? Like, what was your mindset yeah. on a short prep? I don't know. I don't remember exactly how we 
divvied it up. But my, I, I, I remember in college, I always wanted to have, always felt like we needed three meetings to be our best. And I always thought it was good to play in those, the Maui's and the great Alaska shootouts and things like that. Cause you only had one day prep usually because that really challenged it. But for me, the, you know, if we, if we played the evening game in the sweet 16 and one, then we'd meet Friday morning and we'd give a full scale overview of our next opponent with what our simple objectives were to win the game. Then we'd do a walk through light, light, light shoot around. Then we'd get back together before dinner and we'd do a, here's the personnel, you know, tendencies that you need to know while reiterating our, you know, two or three things that we think are most important to win the game. That's on both sides of the ball. Mm-hmm. And then the next morning, it was just a review. So, you know, by the time you would, you know, get ready to play the next game, before you even get to the arena, you had met three times. You had not overcomplicated it, but hopefully organized it in a manner that was simple and concise and so that you had a game plan. And I think the, the adjustments and the tweaks and the things that you need to know at the 10,000-foot view as a coach, you know, you don't need to share all that. You know, those are like plans C, D, and E that you get to if you need to get to, but I always felt like if you had a good plan of attack and your guys were really locked in and really bought in, then you probably never get there and you give yourself a chance to win. You know, you mentioned your staff and you had some incredible staffs at Butler, you know, high-level coaches, coaching everywhere now. Mm-hmm. What did you want from your assistants as in tournament time? You know, I, we had a we had a great staff. You, you nailed it. I mean, I, I go through, I mean, they all, and they, you know, several have gone on to be head coaches, several are assistants at high levels and you know, several of our players, as I said, are assistant coaches and head coaches at different levels. So, you know, our number one objective as a staff was to be on one page, one message. When we were getting ready for opponent, it was we do all the work, we stay up, we do everything that we can to, again, present a simple, concise plan of attack to our team. Practices need to be as simple, as concise at that time of the year as possible. We were never on the court for more than an hour hour 15, hour 30 at max. And I really took that from Todd Licklider, who I thought was the best at that. And then, like, it was our job to operate and coach with poise. You know, I didn't want anyone on edge. wanted everybody to enjoy the experience and not feel like we were going to take away from it because we were going to be on edge. I wanted them to approach it with a positivity and, you know, a belief. Coach hard, but by no means introduce angst into the equation in an already tension-filled environment like the uh, NCAA tournament can be. And, you know, our coaches were tremendous, you know, tremendous help to me and tremendous help to our guys with that. The one-on-one workouts that you did at Butler, if you don't know, they were incredible. I mean, a lot of individual workouts, one-on-one, coach, player. Did you ever work out a player in March that you knew you needed that player to come up big for you? For sure. No, I think that that was something that our you know, we, we had assigned coaches to players and they would work them out one-on-one. And it's funny, Kevin, 20 years ago, again, Coach Licklider was the one that suggested we do that. And I thought it was gold because we were just giving our guys personal attention, whether they played a lot or didn't play at all. And so those continued throughout the regular season and into March as needed. We didn't want to overdo it, especially on their legs at that time of the year. Mm-hmm. So we made sure we logged all of that and made sure we were on top of all of that because we wanted to make sure that they had fresh legs to play. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we would do that all the time. It's, but it's funny now, 
I would do more group work mm. because I think the whole thing is shifted into so much individual work in the summers and fall and the game in a lot of ways is, you know, showcases a lot of that individual work that I think guys are more behind on reads than they are on all the great moves. And so uh, the small group work with coaches on defense or with, you know, a two-on-two work or three-on-three work where you're reading different, you know, pick-and-roll coverages or different off-ball coverages, whatever the case may be, would be how I'd approach it now. But that one-on-one touch where you can just really invest in a guy and make them feel good about their game going into a game you know, is important regardless of what you plan to do in your whole development program. You know, you mentioned Coach Licklider. When I was at Detroit, I think we stayed at the same hotel in Chicago when we'd play UIC in Loyola. And it was one of the things that always caught my attention is play Thursday, Friday, you know, we'd flip-flop opponents. We'd go practice somewhere. A lot of times you guys would stay in the hotel and rest. Was staying off your feet just like a big process for you in March? That was Coach Lick to a T. Mm-hmm. I mean, that would be like, we probably led the, uh, led the country and show up to the gym, guys go and get shots, walk through a couple of plays and then be done. You know, I, the most famous, I guess, story of him doing that was we, we got to Birmingham, we're getting ready to play Mississippi State in the first round in 2003. And, you know, we go over to Birmingham Southern for a practice and we have a really good practice maybe for an hour and and then we've got to go do our mandatory time at the gym shooting and he basically cut our Birmingham Southern practice short we went and and did our mandatory time the next day and canceled our next day practice and just went to the zoo Mm. you know and so I don't know that I don't know that we were off our feet necessarily but at least we got some vitamin D and it was nice and in Birmingham at that time of the year but he was just like you know we're ready we're prepared you know Let's go get, let's just go and clear our minds and get ready to go. You know, the other day I was going through a filing cabinet and I pulled out all my Butler scouts and, you know, obviously the Butler ball screen offense, motion continuity, you know, you're almost ahead of the times with that couch basketball, but I have sheets on sheets, you know, like these box sets, point guard lob, box set, point guard now pinned down for the big, like just counter after counter and counter. When you got, when you got to tournament play, did you I mean, obviously the NBA is a little different in terms of add-ons all the time, but in in college, were you tempted to add or did you just stick with what you guys had in your package? No, we, I mean, we always add, we were so much different by the time I left there than when I showed up, but the ball screen continuity that, that we ran was really the result of Todd and I went to a Cleveland Cavaliers, you know, preseason training camp one year and we're watching their defensive drill where they're shifting it side to side and going into, you know, they're just working on their shows and recovery and rotations and all this stuff. And But the way the drill was going, it was showcasing where all the openings would be depending on where you put the big, the opposite big. At that time, a lot of teams, including us, were playing probably a little bit more traditional. But And so that's really where that kind of took off. But then the, the set plays had, had been things that you kind of morph and add over time. But I, I've never I've never ended a season in my 20 years of coaching where I wish we had more. And I've ended a several of them where I said, I wish we were better at this. Mm. And so I think it's about, you know, just like preparing, I think it's about simplifying. And the NBA, you know, I've said many times, I I would give anything to go back and coach those two Final Four runs because I wasn't as advanced offensively as, you know, you are after coaching the NBA for eight years. I just think the 24-second shot clock, the spacing, the simplification of actions to get to what you want to get to sooner 
rather than a focus on sets or continuity have really helped, you know, me look at the game from an offensive perspective and offensive structure. But, you know, the one thing that the sets and continuities did were allow you to, you know, operate with clock and manage a game a little bit more, especially when you're playing against, you know, some of the talent level that you end up facing in the NCAA tournament. So I could go on YouTube right now and, you know, look up all these edits of your sideline out of bounds, you know, special situations. Obviously, you've done a like you just talked about an incredible job in special situations during your tenure with the Celtics. Like how much of special situations would you encourage a high school coach to work on right now as we go into March? You have to be prepared to finish. Mm. And so, you know, that's a huge part of the game. We always tried in the preseason to do situation days, you know, where you'd have every third day or every fourth day, you'd create five different situations at the end of games and play it out or play short halves or short games where inevitably situations will just happen, you know, if you start out with the score tied. So we tried to do that a lot. Uh, even in the NBA, when you don't have as much practice time, instead of doing like a six-minute game, we would do one-and-a-half-minute quarters mm. so that we had to challenge ourselves in situations. We had to think about two-for-ones. We had to be able to score short clock on the side and underneath. And, and then I would add to that, is once we got into the season, I just had an amazing staff, both at Butler and with the Celtics, that you know they would prepare edits where – you know, you knew what the other team's tendencies were in those situations. And so, you know, if it was a team that switched everything on the side or a team that liked the zone or a team that just played you straight up or, you know, you knew who, especially as you get in the NBA and you play in a seven-game series, you knew who was matched up with who. You knew who the guys were that would go off script and blow up a play. I mean, the you know, whenever I coached against LeBron, I tried to, I tried to keep him out of the action mm. because if he's in the action – he might sniff it out. Mm. And if he sniffs it out, you may not even get a shot up. And so I think that those are things that, you know, the deeper you get into it and deeper, you know, that's, that's way into the weeds. But um, <laughs> I certainly spent a lot of time preparing for those moments and, you know, mostly on film. But, you know, we did prepare our team to be able to play off the board in practice and, and be able to, like, run a new play off the board. Mm. I think that's important. So for me, I always... You know, I, the only time I would grab that board in practice if assistants were coaching the team, whereas if I just wanted to kind of see how guys would react to a new action they had never seen before. And by the end of the season, everybody was so used to it, we could go out and do that. I'm fascinated with in-game coaching and adjusting. I think you were 31, I was 33. I had one opportunity to coach against you. It didn't end very well for me. <laughs> in-game coaching, especially in March, like what's your mindset, you know, as you are in a game? Well, I mean, I think the in-game coaching to me is all how prepared are you to coach in that game? So it all goes back to, again, you know, did you do your film work? Are you ready? Is your team ready? Does your team have a clear vision to win the game? And if so, then the in-game stuff, you know, becomes a lot easier. I think that as a coach, I always tried to go in with, you know, clear vision for our team and then adjustments that were in my own mind. And maybe I'd like grab a guy and say, hey, just be a little bit more ready tonight because I think you might, I might throw you in there even though you haven't been in there in the last couple of weeks because of this matchup. And this is why I'm thinking that, but I wouldn't tell the whole team. That. Mm. And just so that that person's ready, just in case. And then once you get into the game, it's about, you have to see what's giving you fits and you have to be able to adjust quickly. Um, you have to have a pulse on how the flow of the game is going for your team. 
is the other team taking the shots that you went into the game wanting them to take? And are you getting shots that you wanted to take? If those two things are happening, whether you're making or missing or they're making or missing, then you've got a heck of a chance of winning. And so, you know, that's kind of where my mindset was and then making those small tweaks, adjustments, personnel or scheme-based wise as we went through the course of the game. You know, I've read so much about your your career and your thoughts on teaching and leadership, growth mindset. You've talked about the process, high-level thinking, all-star break. The Celtics are right there in Eastern Conference right now. But what is Brad Stevens currently studying, learning, reading, become a better version of Brad Stevens? Yeah, it's so interesting because, you know, my whole professional career up to this point has been coaching. So 21 years, you know, my all-star break would have been focused on okay, a deep dive in the assessment of the first 60 games and a, and a real focus on what we've done well the last 20, how we can best incorporate our new guys and then kind of take off from there. And so, you know, I'm doing that more from the 10,000-foot view in the seat I'm in and not necessarily into all the small details of what we, you know, the plays we were running and everything else. That's not my job. I think one of the things that I've really tried to focus on in my new role is figuring out how we can build and continue to build um, a basketball operations where coaches, analytics, training, players, you know, operations, scouting, everyone feels so empowered and so excited to, you know, grow and compete. And I feel really good about where we are. Mm -hmm. uh, we always want to make progress and we always want to be looking to grow. There are things that I think we can build out and be even better. But I'm excited about where we are. And so this new challenge of like being more involved with the 70 people in the building instead of just the, you know, 20 to 25 has been where my focus is and what I'm trying to learn and grow and become the best that I can be at helping all of those people have not only growth opportunities, but an, an incredibly enjoyable experience. You know, I really appreciate your time today. We're recording this, obviously, during the All-Star break for you to take some time. Just amazing to help young coaches or help any coaches. You know, we were both director of basketball operations. You at Butler, myself at Detroit, like early, early in our career. And I remember going to a, <laughs> I think before the Horizon League tournament down in, in Wright State. And we like, you know, we went to a meeting like with the commissioner, the head of the operations, like to talk about game logistics. And it's just crazy when I just think about your career and how it's, you know, evolved and taken off and, and you know, everything is well-deserved. You know, I'm, I've never personally ever been jealous of your path. I've just always constantly rooted for you. It's like every, every Butler game, every Celtic game, I, you know, I felt like I was your biggest fan. Everything that you've earned, you've deserved, not only because you're a high level thinker and a great leader, but you're just a genuine person. Appreciate you, Brad. That means, yeah, that means a lot coming from you, Kevin. I felt this, I feel the same way about you. And we had some, you know, as we were growing in our own coaching minds and as we were learning how to coach and everything else guy those butler detroit battles were something else in those and i and i missed a couple of the years before in the late 90s but those early 2000s you know and i talked to willie about it when i've seen him and you know rashad and all the things that he was able to do and we had really good teams fun fun battles um looking back on it certainly stretched us both well thanks again brad be well kevin thanks for all you do good luck to you Oh, 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 oh,